So last time we visited David, he was being crowned the king of Israel. We're in the middle of our series entitled Shepherd, Soldier, King, and it's a reflection on the life of David. And over, over the series, over the, over the time that we've been studying David's life, we've looked at, at David's penchant for giving um, glory to God in all circumstances, in all situations. Every time he won a victory, he lifted up the name of God and said, he's the one responsible for this. Every time he found himself in a difficult situation, he turned to God. Everything about him was focused in on God. He focused on the, on the greatness and the graciousness of God. And today's story from David's life um, reveals once again the passion he has for God. The focus he has on God. How important God is to everything. The the very first act of David as king of Israel um, was to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. How many of you guys have heard of the Ark of the Covenant? How many of you have heard of it from something other than Indiana Jones? That's good. Half of you. Um, the Ark of the Covenant was a very sacred um, part of the worship of the nation of Israel. The Ark of the Covenant was directed specifically by God to be built by the Israelites um, after they left left Egypt and to be put into the tabernacle and put specifically into the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle. It was a large box and had two angels, angels over the top of it. And in the box were these these artifacts of God's working in the life of Israel. Uh, the Ten Commandments were there. Um, Moses' writings were there. Aaron's staff was there. It was, all these, it was all this imagery of how God has been with Israel. God has been working for Israel. God has been on Israel's behalf. And it was taken, it was put in the very center, the very center of the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. The place where God's presence dwelled. So over the years, the Ark of the Covenant had been the the image of the presence of God and the working of God in the life of Israel. And over the years, as a result of what had taken place, the Ark of the Covenant had kind of been pushed to the side. It actually was just kind of sitting at somebody's house. It had lost its importance. The presence of God had lost its importance. The, 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 The reflection on the power of God had lost its importance. And so David, when he becomes king, one of the very first things he does is he says, we are going to bring this back. We're going to return and bring to the center once again the presence of God. I want all of Israel to know God is here and God is alive and God is with us in all his power. We see this recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 6. So David went to bring up the Ark of the Covenant from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the Ark of the the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and fattened a calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the Ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the Ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael daughter of Saul, watched from a window. 
And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. Would you bow your head, pray with me as we ask God's blessing upon his word this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have this opportunity to step into your word and learn of you. We have this opportunity to understand you more deeply and as a result, understand ourselves more truly. Father, I pray that we would open ourselves up to the conviction of the Holy Spirit as it's laid out before us in your word. In your precious and holy name we pray, amen. David's passionate celebration, and if you read this story, it is a passionate celebration, is of what? What is it that that he is deeply celebrating? What is it that he is so excited about? What is it that he is so jubilant about? It is the presence of God. It is about his presence being here, his presence being celebrated. As I said, the, the, the whole imagery of the Ark of the Covenant is we put it into the Holy of Holies, the presence of God, God with us. And here he is, he steps in, and he is celebrating the presence of God. His heart was, was set to worship at the realization that God's presence was now coming to Jerusalem. God's presence was now at the seat of the nation of Israel. He jubilantly celebrated that. You see, David was in a very different situation than we find ourselves. When we go into the New Testament, and we, we, we hear the story of when Jesus Christ died on, on the cross and the, and the veil was torn in the temple before the, 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 the Holy of Holies. The imagery was there is that God has made a way now for us to dwell in the presence of God. David stands and he celebrates the fact that God is there and he's jubilant about it and it, and it animates his heart and animates his life. I think it's important for us in the place we are at as it relates to God and the work of Jesus Christ to reflect on the heart of David that celebrates at the idea that God is here, that God is near. There are two different psalms credited to this event in David's life, the return of the ark to Jerusalem. One was uh, Psalms 97 that was read earlier, and the other is Psalms 68. God shall arise. His enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so shall so you shall drive them away as, ma- as wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exalt before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exalt before him. I read this psalm in light of the story, and it just so deeply reflects how David was a man whose heart was trained on worshiping God. 
It was his response to the world around him. He would see God's greatness and God's graciousness, and he would worship. He would say, glory to God. Look at what he's done. Bring, bring just jubilant joy before God. Sing before him. Dance before him. The scene of, of the ark entering Jerusalem really is amazing when you think about it. Here is the king. King David, leading a processional of people and musicians into the city. Remember who we're talking about here. He is the king of Israel. He's the top guy. He's, he's, like, he's like the guy who is the, the not, just, not, just a, not just king rule guy, he's also general over the army guy. He's, he's got to prove himself, right? He's now just been made the king of all of Israel. He's got to prove himself. He's got to prove that he's a serious man who's got a serious job, going to do serious things, right? And the scene we see is David leading a processional of people and musicians, and he's dancing, and he's shouting, and he's singing. And he's doing it not in vain revelry, but in the focus on the greatness of God. The scene is, is so stunning that 2 Samuel tells us that David's wife is offended by what he sees. As she looks out over and she sees the king, the king of Israel, the one who is, who is the head of the army, the one who's, gonna, who's got serious things to do that, that has to show the people that he's serious about this job. She looks out and she sees him out there in just this ephod, in just basically his underwear, Dancing around in front of everybody. And she looks at him and says, what kind of king is this? How can he be doing something like this? But David is undeterred, even by the criticism of his wife. And his response is this. David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. You, you read this and you see the, the great determination that he has to bring worship before God. He reflects on who God is in his life. He reflects on who God is in the life of Israel. And he says, I don't care who criticizes me. I want to worship him. David had this determination to worship God. And I think there is, a, is such a deep lesson to be learned by David when we look at his response. He sought to make the presence of God a central point of his and his nation's life. And his confrontation with the presence of God evoked this act of, of worship, of adoration. His heart's cry was, I want God at the center of it all. I want God at the center of this. And when he understood that God was there, that God's presence was there, he couldn't help but, but sing, he couldn't help but dance, he couldn't help but worship. And I think there's a deep truth for all of us uh, at the heart of David's action, at the heart of David's response, something that we can all learn from. 
Think for a moment about worship. What is worship? What, what does it mean to worship? How do we really worship? We, we come to moments all the time, and we call it worship, right? Sunday morning, you come in here, and I say, why don't you guys stand with me? We're going to go to a time of worship, right? We, we have these moments in our lives. Maybe, maybe it's uh, the times when we, when we do spirit-led, and we come in, and we're going to spend some time in worship, or maybe go to a community group. And we're going to take, take a few moments to worship now. We talk about worship, and we have moments of worship, but what really is Worship. How do we really worship God? I know Christ said, what Christ says in, in, in John chapter 4. He says, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So I see the words of Jesus talking about worship, and he says it multiple times there. And, he, and he, it's obviously an important point because he's bringing it up, and he talks about it quite a few times. So as I read that, I know that there is true worship, which means there must be what? False worship also. I know that if I truly worship, according to what Jesus says here, God seeks after me. But what is worship? Christ taught repeatedly on worship. The epistles, the letters to the church, over 20 times addresses the act of praise and worship. But I'm not sure we really have thought about what worship is, and I'm not sure that many of us really even understand it. Even for me, I, honestly, over the years of being a part of church, the concept of worship can become kind of confusing. As I said, so many times in my life, from the time I, I started going to church, you come in and people are like, we're, we're going into the worship service. Let's go into the worship service. We go into worship service, and the guy gets up, he says, we're going to go to time of worship, and then, and then music starts. And so we begin to worship. And people sing, and, 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 and the Lord, Lord knows that whole thing of worship can go a lot of different ways, Right? You ever been to a church where they didn't exactly do it really well? You ever been standing next to somebody who was worshiping with all their heart, but it was really distracting? You have bad singers. You've got bored singers. You have people who are self-conscious about the way they sang. When I come into worship services where we talk about this idea of God's presence is here, we're going to worship God, it seems really weird to me because I don't see a lot of people really worshiping, at least not the way David did, right? David worshiped uninhibited in his underwear. And I want you to understand, I'm not advocating that here ever on Sunday morning. But there was this heart of going, I'm going to go after God. This is something that I kind of experience to a certain degree every time I go to, every time I go to Rwanda. 
For those of you who've been with, with us to Rwanda, the, the, I mean, note hits, and man, all of a sudden somebody starts dancing. And then a few more people start dancing. A few more people start dancing. Phil's been there, right? And then they come and they grab your hand, right, Phil? And then they start a whole dancing thing around the, around the entire place. Bruce, right? Bruce is out there. Bruce isn't a great dancer. And what, it, what I would tend to do is at the time would start, and I'd know that was happening, what I would do is I'd start moving away from the crowd. And I'd pull out my camera, and I'd stand in the corner with my camera like this. Take, and I wasn't really taking pictures. I just didn't want anybody to grab me to go dancing. But it's crazy because you find yourself in that moment, and you think, man, there is this worship here. There is this, there is this ability to just kind of open up and just go, I'm going for it. And yet even as I stand there and I see it, and it's something that, 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 that kind of moves your heart to a degree, you wonder how much of it is truly this, uh, this unabandoned worship and how much is cultural. We are told we're here to worship. We come to church and we say, we're going to be here and we're, we're going to worship God. We're in a worship service. But then we're told worship is not simply what we do in service, but we're to live a life of worship. What does that mean? What does it mean to be people who worship God? What does it mean to be a true worshiper of God? Here's something I want you guys to think about. I would argue that we all live lives worship. In fact, I would argue that mankind was created as worshipers. And I mean everyone, not just Christians. Dr. Harold Best, in his book, Unceasing Worship, gives this great definition of what worship is. He says, worship is the continuous outpouring of all that I am all that I do, and all that I can ever become in light of a chosen or choosing God. Now think about that definition for a moment in light of what you have come to know as worship. He is saying truly worship is an outpouring of self. And when self is directed towards God, that makes you a true worship, a true worshiper of God. Best argues that we, having been, been created in the image of God in, in the Imago Day, we are a reflection of the Godhead that is continually pouring out of self. He says, God is the uniquely continuous outpourer. He cannot but give of himself. Even before he chooses to create, before he chooses to reveal himself beyond himself, he eternally pours himself out to his triune self in unending fellowship, ceaseless conversation, and immeasurable love unto the infinity of the same. Within limitless intercourse, transcendent speech, and splendid work, the Father to Son, the Son to Spirit, the Spirit to Father, the Godhead goes about its glorious work, of the eternal I am. And then we see in the dawn of time that God brings into the sphere of his outpouring man and all creation. 
He is continually revealing himself through his mighty works, ultimately perfectly embodying himself and his gracious, in his gracious outpouring in the life and the work of Jesus Christ. This is the nature of God himself, that he is continually outpouring. And because we are created in his image, we do the same. His nature is to continually express his essence, and that nature is a part of mankind. We are continually outpouring. And as the created, we are continually worshiping. So that worship is not merely an aspect of our being, but it is the essence of our being as God image bearers. I think when you understand this, it gives us new clarity to what we read in Hebrews chapter 13. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls and as those who, who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. You read this passage and he says, continually worship. And then he goes in and he describes what that continual worship looks like. And it's not, it's not the worship service that we talk about. He continues in here, he's saying, I'm living out this. I'm pouring myself out in this way. I'm sharing with others. I'm sacrificing for others. I'm submitting in community. He's talking about us continually offering up praise and worship. And he begins to show us what that means. So in this way, we are all living lives of worship. Continually pouring out, continually giving of ourselves. Everyone worships all the time. Atheists, agnostics, Christians, and everyone in between are unceasing worshipers. Everyone, everywhere, all the time, is always worshiping. While the object and the method of worship varies, the act of worship doesn't. Understand what I'm saying. Some of us are caught up in worshiping money. Some of us are caught up in worshiping pleasure. And some of us are caught up in worshiping self and prestige and sex and so on and so on and so on and so on. But we are continually giving of ourselves. We are continually pouring out of ourselves in worship of something. And Hebrews here is calling us to give of ourselves, pour out in worship, Rightly before God. We are always outpouring all that we are, all that we do, and all that we can become in tribute to things of this world all the time. And we have to evaluate that life perspective if we are going to be true worshipers of God. So the question to be resolved is not, is not the act of worship, but the object of our worship. Are you living a life of worship? The answer is yes. But who and what are you worshiping? Is it God? 
This is why David, I think, is such a great study in this question because he showed himself to be a man uncommonly disciplined in his expression of worship. And in this, in this life event and the song that followed, we're taught some great lessons in, in how to be that type of worshiper. First thing I, I see as I look at the life of David and the psalm that he wrote out of this experience is, number one, you have to be centered on God. Your heart and your mind and your life has to be centered on God. Actively living a life centered on God. And this is an interesting exercise in our ongoing life. David, in this story that we just read, had this, had this tangible way of expressing his God-centered concern, right? He, he saw the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God. It represented the power of God. And so he was able to say, we're taking it off from the side and we're bringing it to the center. He said, this is our focus. This is the core of who we are. We're bringing it into the capital. We're putting it in the center of the capital. We're going to put it in the tent. We're going to sit here and we're going to worship and we're going to focus in on this. So he had this way of, of, of tangibly bringing something saying, here's the center of it. But this wasn't just the, this tangible way in which David did it. As we walk through David's life, he constantly did it, right? It wasn't just taking this ark and putting it there and saying, okay, now it is. Everywhere he went, everything he did, it was constantly, look at what God did. It's not what I did, it's what God did. Look at God, turn to God, look at God, look at what he did. God, I need you. God, where are you? God, right? Everything you read about him was about that. When things went bad, he went to, the, he went to God. When things were good, he went to God. When he was struggling, he went to God. When he was rejoicing, he went to God. When he was, when he was winning, he went to God. He lived this God-centered life all the time. We need to live a God-centered life. And when we, usually when we hear that, we think of it in more of a spiritual sense. And I'm not sure that that's entirely accurate. We see what, what David did here as an illustration or an image of, 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 of David's God-centeredness, but it, it, it's not entirely accurate to see it as an image or an illustration because he actually did it. He actually did something that was God-centric. A person that is God-centered practices life habits that are God-centered. That was the difference between David and Saul, wasn't it? That's why God rejected Saul and embraced David. Because Saul didn't do things that were God-centric. He didn't live a life that was God-centric. He went to all these other places, but David always was God-centric. We can look at practical steps we take in our lives, and we can find an indication of whether or not we are truly God-centered. I would argue that this, this is a concept that's clearly articulated in God's Word. In Matthew 6.21, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What is Jesus saying? 
He's telling me, if, if you value this world, you will invest your treasure in this world. If you love his kingdom, you'll invest in his kingdom. That's a very practical, God-centered concept, isn't it? You can look at your checkbook and see whether or not he's God-centered, for those of you who still have a checkbook. What does James say? What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also by faith itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. What's he saying? When you're God-centered, the choices you make, the life you live, shows it. Doing the right thing might not mean you are God-centered. But I'm going to tell you, not doing the right thing indicates you're not God-centered. It's that simple. It's funny how often I run into people who, over the years in ministry, who have all the time in the world for everything else but church. I remember these, I, I, I knew this guy up in, up in uh, Minnesota when I pastored up there, and the guy, the guy would work you know, seven, almost seven days a week, six days a week. He was constantly, he was constantly gone. Uh, would work 70, 70 hours a week. He was leave early in the morning, come home at night, barely see his kids. And I remember going up to him once, and we were asking, we were looking for people to be ushers. And we're like, hey, would you mind ushering for like a half hour before church and uh, once a month? Yeah, you know, Sundays are the only time I have to spend with my kids. And it's like, well, not really. You've made a choice. You've made a choice that making more money is more important, and you don't have time to serve in a very small way in your congregation. Each one of us looks at our lives, and we can determine whether or not truly it's God-centric. You, you don't go to church. You don't pray. You don't help those who are hurting. You don't give financially to support God's church. You don't really care about others, but you pursue money, spend on yourself, ignore the hurting. You don't partake in Christ's community. You're not a part of his church very much. You are saying with your life what you worship. Jesus says, God seeks true worshipers. If you do all those things, are you God-centered? I'd say I doubt it. The second truth I think that needs, that we need if we're going to be true worshipers is not only are we centered on God, but being centered on God comes because we've been overcome by grace. I think this is a concept that does more to create true worshipers than probably anything else. If you are not 
overcome, undone by the grace of God to us. Our view of God, Christ, and his work will be really, really sad. And we will most likely be poor worshipers of God. David engages stupidly in worshiping God. Just pours himself out, gives of himself. He just goes for it. So much so that his wife is embarrassed and how he so lavishly worships. And what does he say back to her when she criticizes him? Remember the words, she, the words he used? He said, it was before the Lord. He chose me above your father and all of his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. What was the heart of his motivation of celebrating before the Lord? He chose me. He's looking at her and he's saying, look at what he's done for me. He is so abundantly aware of God's grace to him that he cannot but express his gratitude, his, his heart, his love, his worship towards God. He chose me. He appointed me prince. Not because, not because he had to. Not because I was worthy. Not because I earned it. He's looking at her and he says, listen, I was a stupid pimple-faced, 15-year-old, smelly shepherd boy. And he chose me. And he cleaned me up. And he established me on this throne. And I will worship him. The heart that worships is a heart truly overcome by God's grace. To them. Let me ask you Are you animated by Romans 11? So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Are you overcome by that? Because you are that remnant. Are you overcome by the statement in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1? For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen us. Does it thrill your heart when you hear Ephesians 1, 3? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Do you want to sing and dance and shout like David when you realize Peter's declaration in 1 Peter 2 is about your calling, your place by the grace of God? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, 
now you have received mercy. So many Christians, we hear these words and they mean nothing to us. They, they, they just seem like something that echoes around, that just seems, we seem so, so, so separated from. But his grace chose you. His mercy was poured out on you, not because you were so great, not because you did such wonderful things. You were lost and now you are found. You were blind and now you see. You were dead and now you are alive because the grace of God poured out on you. How can you worship anything but him? The heart that cannot worship God is the heart that has not been gripped by the grace of God. And it is a heart that is too comfortable in its own existence, too too dependent on its own works, and too unaware of the great grace God has extended. A grace that was extended through Christ's sacrifice. How can we not loudly declare with David, I will celebrate before the Lord. What's amazing about all of this, what's amazing about all the worship that we do is that it all culminates in being passionate about His glory. As we've been moved in our hearts to realize the mercy and grace that God's poured out on us, what we want to do is we want to say, God, you be glorified. God, you be lifted up. That's what worship is. When we go through our days, when we go through our weeks, when we go through our lives, what we want to do is we want to worship Him so that he's magnified, so that he's lifted up, so that he's glorified. God, I want you to be seen. I want people to understand how amazing you are. Everything we do, give, serve, love, work, forgive, suffer, preach, sing, dance, is so that God may be glorified, that Christ may be lifted up, not for my glory, but for yours, not for my comfort, but for your glory. I want you to be seen in everything because I want to be somebody who worships you because I've responded to the mercy and grace you've given me. God shall arise. His enemies shall be scattered and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so shall, shall, drive, shall you drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exalt before him. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Our God is a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belongs deliverances from death. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord, to him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. Behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Ascribe power to God whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. This is the declaration of a heart that understands his God.
This is the declaration of a heart that is determined in discipline to worship Him every day. The question that is laid before us this morning is, is your life centered on God? Are you overcome by His grace to you? Are you passionate about God being glorified in your life? This is the life that worships God. And this is a true worshiper of Him. The question I'm asking you to contemplate today is this. Does my life look like the life of a worshiper? If I prioritize my life so that in everything I do, everything I pour out is for Him, towards Him, about Him. The words I choose, the choices I make, the way I speak to my wife, the way I raise my children, the way I invest in my, in, in, in my, in my workplace. Am I giving my life in worship to Him? Because that's what He's calling us to. Every day, we choose who and what we worship. Will you choose to worship Him today?